Reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. I'm going to begin this morning with a question. And the question is, how well do you know yourself? It's actually kind of a hard question because on the one hand, who knows you better than yourself. You know all of your life experiences that at least those you could remember, you know your secret thoughts, things that you may not share. Uh, And we have certain experiences that people don't know about or thoughts that we have that people don't know about because they're mundane. Uh, Sometimes we just don't share them because nobody would be interested and yet they do tell a story. But we also have those thoughts that we're embarrassed about. We have those experiences that are painful um, that we don't disclose. And so, so many of us could have uh, no one in our lives who really knows the, the whole story. Uh, the interesting thing, though, on this question, how well do you know yourself, is while there may be all sorts of things about you that people just don't know and may never know, uh, there are things about you that, that you may not be able to see, that you may not um, uh, interpret rightly. And, and so it's very interesting that Uh, oftentimes people around us know us in ways that we don't know. They can see our flaws. They can see our gifts in ways that don't necessarily uh, convey the same to us. Um, Maybe you have gotten the same feedback from different people about something in your life over the years, but it doesn't make sense to you or you haven't grasped it. It hasn't become a reality. Uh, That's one of the challenging things about growing, about being a person that Um, we don't always understand ourselves. And part of it is in the same way that we're embarrassed and don't want to admit our flaws, sometimes the the embarrassment extends to 
um, when others see our flaws is an inability to really see them. Uh, we're in a sermon series where we're looking at love and we're looking at different components, different relationships, God, self, others in the world. And so today we're still in love for God. And um, according to Jesus, love for God is something that actually restores, renews our very spirits, that, that it's not simply that uh, God enjoys knowing that people love him, but we ourselves as human beings um, grow, not just spiritually, but in every way, once we grow in love. And one of the ways that we need to grow is in love for God. The lesson from today, Jesus' teaching that we looked at in, or we're looking at in Luke 7, is that there seems to be a relationship between love and forgiveness. The Christian message is a message about forgiveness. There's a number of reasons why that doesn't resonate with us. Maybe it doesn't seem like our deepest need. Um, maybe uh, our concept of justice doesn't really allow for the, the nuances of Christian conceptions of forgiveness. But Jesus comes to announce forgiveness and to teach us about it. And one of the things that he says is that when you, when you really grasp forgiveness, and in particular, the message he has about God's extending forgiveness to you, that once you really grasp the depth of that, you will find that something changes in you. And one of those changes is that you will start to love in ways that you haven't and maybe currently aren't. And it may be a love for God. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, uh, this passage in Luke. And I'm, I'm going to first talk about getting close to a prophet. That's where I'm going to begin. Uh, because Simon, the Pharisee who invites Jesus over, invited him over thinking he was a prophet. And he wanted uh, to get to know Jesus, maybe to evaluate, to try to figure out, did, did God send this man but yet Jesus coming into his home, coming into his life, is the means by which God showed that Jesus is not just a prophet, but more than a prophet. But it winds up becoming perhaps a bit surprising or even a little uncomfortable for Simon. Jesus comes into his home at his invitation, comes into his life, and yet he's going to have to see something that he wasn't able to see. But that gives him the opportunity. We don't know uh, how this unraveled. We know how this is left for us to challenge us, but we don't know what happened in Simon's life. But we know that um, he had an inability to see things properly. So verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him, the Pharisee is Simon, him is Jesus, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, this woman who comes in to the meal weeping and starts washing Jesus's feet and pouring oil on them. When, when the Pharisee who saw, who had invited Jesus into his house saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And so, so the scene here is that Jesus is reclining at a table. That's how uh, sort of more um, sort of fancier dining would have been. He would be laying down so his feet would be accessible. Um, this might be more today if we would have been in a restaurant. It's, it wasn't so unusual that this woman came into Simon's house, even though she wasn't an invited guest. I'm sure it was a bit odd in a number of ways, but it wouldn't be as odd as today are having locked doors. But she comes in, she's, she starts uh, washing his feet, and Simon has a thought, and the thought shows that he's in evaluation mode. Simon's trying to figure out who is this Jesus? I'm very sympathetic to that. I spent years trying to figure that out, and I still find myself with these kinds of questions. 
And so he wants to know, is this man really sent from God? Should I trust him? And so his thought is, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, for she's a sinner. And so Simon at that point seems to think he knows something Jesus doesn't know. He could see this woman as a sinner and thinks Jesus lacks the discernment that a prophet would have. And so, so should Simon trust Jesus when Simon seems to have better discernment than Jesus? Jesus doesn't seem to know the nature of this woman. Um, this is Simon's thought. <laughs> if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is, that she is a sinner. And the interesting thing is, of course, Jesus winds up through the story demonstrating he knows who and what sort of man Simon is, because he too is a sinner. And that's something that Simon doesn't seem to have yet grasped in the way that he's grasped with clarity the sinful nature of this woman. And so is Jesus a prophet who sees and discerns? Does Simon know more than he? Well, it's interesting. Simon thinks this, but he doesn't say it. And so Jesus does seem to know that this woman is a sinner, but he also seems to know what Simon is thinking. And so the question, is Jesus a prophet? Is he sent by God? This passage allows the reader to say, actually, of the three people in the situation, Jesus seems to be the one who really sees and understands what's, what's going on. Simon sees something. He sees that this unusual woman comes in to do this unusual thing. And he's grappling with the clarity of her sin, but he is about to have to grapple with the clarity of his own. And it's not clear how ready he is for that. Uh, and so um, one of the things about the Pharisees, if, if you grow up in a Christian home or in religious circles, you've probably heard enough about uh, the Pharisees. They were, uh, it was a, a, a religious sect, a subgroup of Judaism. And many of the people who were in charge uh, in Jesus's day who had religious power were Pharisees. And we tend to think of them as these are the bad guys. These are the, the arrogant rule keeping. These are the people that, that stood against Jesus. And certainly Jesus debated with them. Certainly they came to test him. But we see individuals like Simon inviting him into his home. Uh, Nicodemus, we see other Pharisees that seem to have this genuine desire to, to know God and I find myself over the years having increased in my sympathy towards the Pharisees, which by the way, I don't want to encourage. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to hate the Pharisees. <laughs> but I find myself in my own religious life thinking, how, how do I take the things that the Bible says and apply them to the whole of life? How do, I, how do I really work this out to live a faithful, honorable life? How do I grow and improve as a person? How can I be better now that I have the commandments, the teachings of the Bible? How can I grow in all of these ways? And, and, and how could I um, sort of take the shape of Christianity such that I'm a, a member of a Christian community, that I belong socially within the people who are playing by Jesus's rules? I sort of think all those things are right. And yet it seems that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And yet the result through the conflicts that we see with Jesus and the Pharisees were, were not that they had grown in, in a deep, rich greatness, but that some of them had grown in a superficial religiosity, but their hearts weren't changed. And the reason that troubles me is because I find myself wanting to know the ways of Jesus and learn what the rules are and try to get my life together. 
But I know that the warnings that Jesus had, the dangers are, they still apply. So, so how can you grow morally? How can you grow uh, religiously and spiritually without growing arrogant, without growing hard in heart? And there's a sense in which I actually don't know. I, I don't know that there's a way to do it outside of the grace of God, outside of depending on God, outside of the humility of the person who's simultaneously, simultaneously growing in morality and growing in humility, who's simultaneously learning the ways of God and functioning in his, his society, but also finding an increased compassion for the, for the society that he's trying to distance himself from. Um, human beings tend not to be very good at that. And Simon is an example of somebody who I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. He invited Jesus into his home. I'm going to assume he wanted to learn. He wanted to honor God and he wanted to think critically to not believe the wrong thing. That's good. But here he was and what he sees is this woman is sinful. And he's so gripped by that rather than by his own need that he misjudges Jesus. Jesus must not have discernment. And it's that blindness that we are all prone to as we're trying to improve our lives, getting our lives together. Um, the tendency we have is to, to always be comparing ourselves to others and not wanting to look frankly, because looking at, at the sin of others can be encouraging to us. It could be discouraging if we have compassion. It could be discouraging if you're fearful for where society is going, but it could be encouraging because you're not that sinful person. Uh, but when you see your own flaws, it's painful because you have to deal with it. You could ignore the other sinner, but you can't ignore yourself. And yet we find ourselves um, not really knowing who we are because we're ignoring parts of who we fundamentally are because we, we can't handle it. Um, and so, so this time that we're in, this, this time of social distancing, this time of shelter in place for those of us who are in New York or other places that are doing this, this is an unusual time. We wouldn't have planned it. We wouldn't have wanted it. And yet, um, for all of us, our lives have, cha have, have changed radically. My hope is they've changed temporarily, but they've changed radically. But my question for you to consider is, well, what are you seeing? in this time period. So, so your life has changed. You're now home a lot more often. Your normal structures aren't in place. Uh, uh, the sort of goals that you had maybe are, are, are being changed. For each of us, we're being affected differently by this, but each of us are being affected. And so the question is, what are you seeing? Um, we believe that God shows us things. It's, this is not just about you needing to figure out your circumstances, but it's about you who lives before God. And if you believe God and you love God and you trust God, look gratefully for what he might be showing you. If you are not there, if you don't know what you believe, um, God might be trying to show you things. And will you, will you look? This is a time where we're going to see many things. And let me give you some examples. These, this may not be what you're seeing, but, but these are, are examples. Um, and here, here's an illustration. I've learned that I touch my face a lot. I had no idea until I was told, do not touch your face. And now I find that I do it when I itch, when I need to wipe my nose, but there seems to be some nervous thing that I do where I'm touching my face. And now the more I'm trying not to do it, I find that I'm not making progress in that. But, uh, but I've learned that I touch my face far more than if you would have asked me three weeks ago. Um, 
what things are you learning? So for example, uh, have you learned that now that you don't have to necessarily commute, now that you um, don't have as many things to show up to, now that you can't go to the gym, now that, that your normal routines are there, have you learned that the reason that you don't read the Bible and pray is not actually because you don't have enough time? Is it because we have a theology that says the Bible is God's word, spend time it, in it, and we have an intellectual understanding that there's a, a law of diminishing returns with social media that the more time you spend on it, the less you get out of it. Why is it with our open time that the phone is more compelling than the Bible? I say this not to shame you. I say this uh, out of my own experiences this week. I believe that the Bible will nourish my soul. I believe that too much Facebook will poison my mind. <laughs> I probably spent more time on Facebook than in the Word this week. I'm not sure, but I, I think it's possible. Um, that's something that's not easy to see. What, what does that mean? And so, so for you, um, you want to love people. And, and now some of you, unless you live by yourself, are with people. You're with family. You're with roommates. Um, do you find that, that actually uh, your love needs to be very controlled? Um, are you able to love people when you're able to keep them at a certain distance. Um, that's one of the things about, about the Pharisees. They, they, through control, are able to create consistency in their lives. Control is good. Consistency is good. But when somebody who doesn't fit your social conventions comes into your life, can you welcome them? Can you see them as a human being? Um, now is a time that we're going to find, without our controls in place, maybe you're happy to spend more time with the people you live with but you wouldn't spend as much time as you currently are. And what's that doing to your patients? Are you getting along? Are you seeing this as a time of growth? I'm giving a couple of examples here to say, um, this is a time period where we're gonna get to know ourselves a little bit more because God is gonna show us things. And some of those things will encourage us, but some of them will be difficult. Are you ready to grow? Um, if you want to grow, then you need to be ready to have some difficult things remain in your life so you can work through them. Because we quickly want to ignore and avoid and construct our lives so that we don't have to spend any time dealing with the things that are too painful. And this is a painful time in a number of ways. This is a time where you may have some things set before you. You could try to uh, distract yourself. Or you can say, Lord, now that you are showing me this, show me the way through. That's the opportunity Simon has. So, so on the one hand, uh, he gets close to a prophet. That's where I began. But I, I want to move now into talking about how he can learn from a sinner. Because this woman and Jesus' interaction with her becomes an example for us. So here's the second thing I want to talk about, learning from a sinner. Um, Jesus comes into Simon's home not to humiliate him, and yet you come into the presence of the one who says, I am the truth, and now something true is before him. What's he going to do with it? Is he going to make excuses? Is he going to hate Jesus? Or is he going to, to hear what Jesus says and to see what Jesus shows him and to learn? Is he going to grow? And so Jesus tells a parable. You know, this woman comes in and Simon says, if only this man knew who she was. And so without knowing exactly what, Jesus, what Simon had said or was thinking, Jesus tells a parable, and the parable is very brief. It's verses 41 and 42. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 
500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So a very simple situation. Uh, we don't use denarii today, um, but, but if you think about it just in terms of wages, I, I'm not keeping the proportions correctly here, but let's say one person uh, owed three months of their salary and another person five years, and both are forgiven. Who would be more grateful in a sense? Who would love more? Well, um, the obvious thing what Simon says is you would assume the person who is forgiven more. Um, but what's interesting about his example is both parties had a debt. Both parties were not able to repay it. And so if you owe three months of your salary's worth to someone and somebody else owes five years, it doesn't matter that they owe five years. The question is, what are you going to do? Can you repay the debt? Uh, and there could be different agreements. If you just give me some time, if you give me three years, maybe I could give you through installments a little bit. Maybe I, I will never be able to repay you, but I could come and work for you. And so if I could give myself three years to you, maybe you could come up with other arrangements. But at this point, the power is in the, the hands of the one to whom you owe. And so the, so the issue here is uh, you owe someone. And rather than coming up with a plan, making a deal, you're in a situation that you can't fix yourself. You just don't have the money. You're indebted. When the person you owe it to forgives you, says, actually, rather than coming up with a plan, rather than making you work for me, um, rather than taking your word that one day you'll repay, I'm just going to forgive you and you no longer need it. That should make any person in that situation grateful, should make them appreciate. It should elicit love for the one who pardons us. And yet, what is it about us that we would say, well, look, this person owed five years. I only owed three months. It's the kind of thing where, where we construct a society and we say, you know what, traffic accidents kill people. And so we need speeding laws. So let's set a speed limit. But people are not going to keep the speed limit just because they agree with it. So we're going to have somebody who enforces the speed limit and we need a penalty. And so you have police whose jobs are to give tickets. And how many of you, upon receiving a ticket, are angry and your anger will include a dialogue like, as you think of the injustice of you're getting a ticket for having broken the law, this is how we think, this cop is giving me a $100 fine because I went 10, minute, 10 miles per hour over the limit while there are people out there mugging people and murdering people. Isn't that how we think? We think, even if, you, if, if we were to be part of lawmaking, we would think speeding laws are just, speeding penalties are just, when we are the one justly getting the penalty. We don't experience it as just necessarily. Our anger, our frustration, we do a number of things, all of us respond differently, but I think a lot of us would respond by saying, this is unfair because look at the other people. And why is he spending his time with me when there are actual criminals out there? And so the problem with that thinking, and that thinking is unfortunately natural to human beings. How do you know yourself? Well, you know yourself based on your own experiences, but part of the evaluation metric, you need the controls. Um, who, who, what are the control groups? Other people. And so here, here's where it backfires. To the degree that you're able to say, I know that I'm a good person, to the degree that I see other people that are less good than me. There is something oddly comforting about that. That's something that, that we actually naturally do that helps us. But if you do that, does it help you when you see people who are better than you? 
And see, this is where the metric doesn't necessarily produce love. See, when you see somebody who's worse than you and you feel like you're more okay, you haven't grown in love, you've grown in being able to manage your pain and your difficulty. But that same paradigm means you are not going to be able to function in a competitive environment. You're not going to be able to rejoice with the greatness of people around you and be glad and celebrate. Because if your um, identity is tied to who you are in relation to others, you're going to need the sinners to come into your home so you can feel better about your host, but you won't want Jesus coming near because compared to him, you have some work to do. And so, so Simon has the opportunity to learn here where, where what he thought was simply an opportunity for him to test the wisdom and truth of Jesus. He now finds that Jesus, because he is the truth, has created a test for him. Is he willing to see that he's wrong? And so, so that's Jesus's question in verse 44. Simon, do you, do you see this woman? And see, that's what Simon says. Does Jesus know who this woman is? Jesus knows. But Simon, when she came in here, what did you see? He says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Did, did you see somebody who was in pain and yet saw something in me that, that she wanted to come to? Or did you see a bunch of rules that she wasn't keeping and you wondered about me because... I sort of let her not keep the rules. And, and so, so he's saying, Simon, you've seen this woman, but now um, let's, let's look at you. Uh, so, so when I came into your home, you could have offered me water for my feet. It's, it's fine that Simon didn't. He didn't have to. That wouldn't have been an obligation. It would have been above and beyond. Did, did Simon receive Jesus thinking Jesus really was great, or did he receive him skeptically at waiting for Jesus to prove himself? Jesus is saying, when this woman came, she came treating me like I was already great, and you seem to be waiting to figure me out. You gave me no kiss. Uh, that's okay. He didn't need to greet him. Um, but this woman came, and she didn't simply kiss me as a greeting, but she kissed my feet. That's, that's a bit strange, but there's something so humbling about that that it creates a contrast. Simon, you didn't even greet me warmly as normal people might, and yet you're concerned about the way that she's treating me, which is extravagant and unusual. Uh, but Simon, uh, look at this woman who seems to, to come with such humility that she's overwhelmed that I might receive her, and you are still in the position of power trying to figure out if I meet your standards. And the question is, will Simon wind up loving more having had that interaction with Jesus unless Simon understands that he is not seeing properly? And that seems to be Jesus's lesson, is that the one who is forgiven much, loved much, and the one who says, compared to everyone else, yeah, what's the big deal? So you forgave me a couple of months' wages. As soon as you don't realize that, that grace has been shown to you, then, then you're shut out of the ability to, to love yourself, and love is something that you need. And so Jesus doesn't give her an, an example, doesn't have this woman become the example of who we need to be. He knows she's a sinner. Verse 47, I he's speaking to Simon, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. So the answer to Simon, Simon's thought is, yes, Simon, I know just how much her sin is, just how many sins she's committed. I know all about her, and yet I can forgive her. But Simon, 
um, what about you? If I were to forgive you, would you love in an extravagant way? And, and that's a lesson, that's a hard lesson, because it's for us to really love like God loves, it involves our understanding that God loves us, not because of the great things we do, but he loves us despite our indebtedness, the fact that we can't repay, the, the fact that we can't get ourselves together. That realization, when somebody who doesn't love you exposes you, it humiliates us. It doesn't cause us to grow, it causes us to hide. And that's why we've learned to hide because other people have brought truth into our lives and it's been painful, but they haven't helped us. Jesus comes and he brings truth into people's lives. And yet we find that the most marginalized, the most painful, the most humiliated are drawn to him unlike to anyone else. And there's something about the love of God that when we understand not simply that we are indebted and can't get ourselves together, but that God really has the kind of grace that he will forgive us and receive us as nobody else would, it means that we have the one relationship established where we can really deal with who we are. And if we're really dealing with who we are, then we can start to love in the way that God loves us. And, and so there, there's a story that I uh, shared last week, and I'm, I'm going to share a part of it that I didn't share. Um, this was about a pastor in Brooklyn named Jim Simbola. He's quite well known. He's a very gifted pastor, but his church is quite influential, the Brooklyn Tabernacle. I shared a story. Here's a quick rehash uh, for those of you that were on or for those of you that weren't with us last week. Uh, on Easter Sunday, a number of years ago, Jim Cimbala, um, whose church has multiple service, high energy, at the end of the last service, he was exhausted. Uh, and he, they always invite people forward for prayer. And there was a man who came forward who was missing teeth, who was disheveled. And Cimbala said that, that the smell was so terrible as he got near that he couldn't take it. And he asked the man his story, and the man indeed was homeless, uh, living in the streets. And, and his instinct, where he normally would not have given money, because that's what often church policies are, he just thought, you know what, this guy needs money, and I, and I, need to, I just need to, to care for him and to go. He takes money out of his wallet and, and offers it to the man, and the man stops him and says, put your money away. I, I didn't come forward because I want money. I came forward because I want Jesus. Something powerful there, this person whose life um, had none of the social advantages, heard a message about Jesus and felt, I want to come forward there. I want to be prominent in a community that would, will, would welcome me. But Simbala, uh, Jim Simbala was so ashamed at that realization. God opened his eyes to see that he just wanted to give the guy money to leave. And he did not think that God would welcome this person, perhaps, or he, as God's servant, was not prepared to welcome this person. Uh, it overwhelmed him. It humbled him. Now, now that's the story I shared last week. Uh, here's the part that I didn't share, uh, or, or I'm getting to the part that I didn't share. Maybe I shared this. So, so apparently they, they, they took this guy in who became a Christian, and they gave him a job, and they, they um, gave him money to, for dental work. He got his teeth fixed. Uh, he had, a, he had a, an addiction. They got him through um, a recovery program. And, and Jim Simbola welcomed him to him on, into his home on holidays for Easter and for Christmas. And the, and the, the, the new bit of information that Simbola uh, shares in that story, he said, when he came over for Christmas, he gave me a gift. He brought a white handkerchief that he just wrapped up in wrapping paper, no box or anything. And, and Simbola said he held on to that handkerchief for years. And what he said was, I valued it more than if somebody gave me a new car. Now, why? 
I think there could be a lot of reasons. I don't understand why. Sometimes when you see generosity, when people out of their lack give generously, there's something so encouraging and hopeful about that. Maybe it was simply a sign of that. But I suspect it was more than that. It was, it was, it was a gift from a relationship where two individuals who both needed grace, <laughs> um, but Symbola was one who saw that the other needed it and was going to give him money that the guy didn't want. The guy wanted grace and Symbola realized he needed it too. And when this guy who had little now gave him a token of this relationship, a mutual relationship, I'm sure that was a sign for Symbola that, that God works, that God brings people into your life to show you things, not to humiliate you, not to make you feel worse than you already feel, but to actually take the burden from you. And that handkerchief would have been a sign that symbol who was ready to, to send a man away actually invited him into his home and built a relationship and saw the work of God in the sinner's life as well as his own life, the man who he learned was even more of a sinner than he would have acknowledged. And so, so that's what Jesus seems to be wanting to show us. If you come near to me, you will, you will experience um, the discomfort of knowing that you have a lot of growing to do. But if you come near to me, you will also see my grace and favor. Are, are we willing to have that level of honesty? And so here's, here's a practical question for you this week for you to, to think about. The question is how, how long you've been social distancing? Has it been one week? That's in New York City. We've been under shelter in place for about a week. Some of you, maybe you're ahead of the protocols and a few weeks ago, maybe it's been three weeks that you've been social distancing. Uh, but here's the thing I want you to think about. The question is how long have you been social distancing? And what I want you to think about, has it actually been most of your life? Um, the new protocols of not going out and shopping and going to the gym and doing these other things are different. But, but have you actually organized your life to create a sufficient distance between yourself and others so that nobody sees the flaws, so that nobody understands the pain? Um, if you've done that, you are already you've spent years practicing social distancing. And love does not come easily when you're creating a gap between yourselves and others. And so will you invite Jesus in to have a meal with you and keep him distant? Or will you allow Jesus to, to ask questions about your very thought life that will be uncomfortable, but will draw you nearer? Is distance something you're committed to maintaining? Or is distance something that's meant to be a temporary measure of dealing with a reality that you weren't yet able to deal with, but now, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, you can take steps closer and with honesty, not keep Jesus away, but let him in and find that the response, the gratitude that he doesn't come into your life to shame you but to forgive you and welcome you, that that could create a humble gratitude. The process of being humbled is never pleasant, but do you want to love anywhere near like Jesus loves? If you do, Jesus says, well, then you need to know that you've been forgiven much, because if you're forgiven much, then you can love much. So here's the last thing that I want to talk about, seeing the Savior. I've been talking about the difficulty of seeing our our sins, seeing our flaws, seeing the things that are painful. 
But in this passage, we see once again by how Jesus conducts himself that he's not just a prophet, he's remarkably more than a prophet. He's the savior. And that's his words to this woman. He sends her out saying, your faith has saved you. She didn't just need encouragement, she needed salvation. What Jesus seems to be implying to Simon is, well, you need it too. There's a debt you cannot pay. Uh, and to the reader of Luke, why did Luke record this story for us? And I think the key reason, or at least a key reason we have this story is because of verse 49. Those who were at table with Jesus began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And I think one of the reasons we have this story is because we're, we're, we're meant to be left with this question, who is this? Who is this man, Jesus? Because we're, we're evaluating him. Is he a prophet? Is he saying the truth? Can I trust him? Will he be useful to me? And they're left a little bit overwhelmed. Who is this? And their question was theological. It was a good question. Who is this who even forgives sins? Because after all, I could wrong you and you need to forgive me. But when we characterize it as sin, it means the wrong that I've done to you has not only offended you, but it's offended God. And so who can forgive sin? When Jesus tells this woman that her sins are forgiven, they're actually right in discerning, this is, this is quite, a, quite an assertion about yourself. Who is this who can forgive sins? And so the two things we need to grapple with is, can Jesus forgive sins? Is he who he claims to be? Does he have that power and authority? The question that you're going to need to grapple with personally is, but will, will Jesus forgive sins? Can he? That's the distant question. That's the intellectual question. Does Jesus fit the type of person, the criteria to say, this guy has been sent from God? Can he forgive sins? The problem is, you can come to an answer where you would say, yes, I believe that's true. But as long as you're keeping him distant, the question of, but will he forgive your sins, is one that you're not going to have peace about. And so this woman, very unrestrained, comes in with her pain and falls humbly at his feet and through devotion shows that she came not to figure Jesus out, but she came desperately with hope that Jesus would welcome her and heal her. And Simon is not yet there. And some of us try to avoid that. But what we're told is, but, but when it happens, when when the pain comes, when, when we're humiliated, where can we go? Jesus says, you don't need to, to have figured out the answer to the question of, can I forgive sins? You need to come and believe I will. <laughs> and as I do, you will find that not only that I can, but that my love for you is real. So why does Jesus go to the cross? Christian, Christianity teaches Jesus went to the cross to die so that sins could be forgiven. But how does that work? And anytime, uh, this is where an economic model works well, anytime there's a debt, somebody needs to absorb the debt. And so if you owe me $100 and you can't repay it, and I say, don't worry, you don't have to repay it, it's not that the $100 disappeared. It's that instead of you're having to bear your responsibility to pay me back, I'm bearing the weight of losing the money. I'm bearing the penalty for your not having been responsible, perhaps. And so that, that's the way to forgive a debt works. And the, 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 the metaphor, the imagery of debt is something Jesus uses here and in other places in regards to sin. You, you can't get your life together to be good enough so that God will welcome you. Your life will not be long enough that you could put your, your sins on layaway. What we're told is that if God is gracious and forgives us, well, then that's good news. 
And Jesus goes to the cross, not because he had done anything wrong ever, but because we have done things wrong, the depths of which we still don't see and realize. And so Jesus suffering death on the cross on our behalf is his paying a debt we cannot pay. And what we're told is if he forgives you that much, um, and if you really grasp it, it would be unusual that that would not stir the kind of humility in you that would lead you to love the one who, who offers you such radical forgiveness to change your life. And so in verse 50, Jesus says to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Was her, safe a work? Was her faith a work that earned her God's salvation? No. The faith was that she came and trusted him in a way that Simon was not yet trusting him. Her faith demonstrated she knew her need. She received the promise of his forgiveness. And his sending her out, he says, now go in peace. Um, and that's what we're told. And what's interesting is if you look at the way Jesus treats Simon, he treats him honorably. He treats him with the truth. But look at how he treats this woman that Simon was probably about to kick out. He doesn't only know that she's a sinful woman. He doesn't only see her pain. He doesn't only welcome her and her unusual offering. But instead of humiliating her in the social context, he actually vindicates her. When Simon thinks he doesn't know who this woman is, Simon chooses to use this woman as an example um, to say, actually, Simon, what do you see? Do you see a woman whose life is so atrocious that she shouldn't be with us? Or do you see someone who is so humbled that she's coming with a love that I want everybody to learn from? That's the nature of drawing near to Jesus, where society is trying to shame everyone because we're all trying to get ourselves together and feel better about ourselves so far as people are worse than us. Jesus is coming, not bragging about himself and his power and authority, but he's coming and he's forgiving sinners, and then he's defending them. He's vindicating them. He's saying, if you see as God sees, you would see not simply a person who's hopeless, but a person who, having received grace, now has God's love in them. And so he tells her, go in peace. And I suspect Simon left a bit rattled. And that's what an encounter with Jesus does if we're not humble, it rattles us. But if we are humble, it changes us. And that's where it's not simply that Jesus can forgive sins. He can, but it's that he will. How do you know he will? Well, he suffered death on the cross, not for any of his own sins, but for our own. And so this paradigm shift, here's what I want to leave you with, with these questions as, as I've asked you to think through, do you know yourself? Um, what is God showing you? How long have you been social distancing? Um, here's the shift that needs to happen from a paradigm of entitlement to a paradigm of humble grace. This week, what you should practice is, and this is a hard week to practice it because this week there's going to be hard things. Uh, the world is, is tur being turned upside down to a certain degree. Um, yes, there will be real hardship, real pain, real difficulties. But in the midst of that, if, if, if you go into this week as you do many other weeks to say, I've been working hard. What, what can I get out of this week? Then when things fall apart, your, your justice meter will kick in. This is not fair. I've lived a responsible life. I, I carefully researched the companies before I invested in them. And now they're falling apart by something that me or the company uh, had nothing to do with. I carefully did my work this week. And now why do I worry that I will be laid off? Um, 
those are not sinful thoughts. Those are not foolish thoughts. The question is, are they helpful thoughts? See, if that paradigm of entitlement coming into this week, watching for everything that you feel you deserve is being stripped from you or everything you hope for, try going into this week denying entitlement and say, I'm going to begin this week with the assumption that I am owed nothing. Now, I'm not telling you to be pessimistic to assume the worst. I'm not telling you to hate yourself and to think you don't deserve anything. I'm saying begin with the assumption, I'm coming into this week and no one, including God, owes me anything. And now I'm going to watch. What is God showing me? And what am I seeing? Am I seeing God providing? Am I seeing God showing me grace? Am I seeing in any small ways that in the midst of a terrible week, God is giving evidences of kindness and faithfulness. And it could be as simple as a bite of something that you like, where you say, Lord, in the, in the midst of the last two excruciating hours of trying to sit through one more Zoom meeting, thank you that you gave me 10 seconds of something that tastes good. Um, try that. Try to deny an attitude of entitlement and to live so that you see the generosity of God, who doesn't give you what you deserve, but here's the gospel message. Not only does he not give you what you deserve, punishment for your sins, but he will give you what you don't deserve. That's grace. This week, he will show you that you need grace, but he's also going to show you that he gives it. And I want to encourage you to be willing to watch for both.